Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is James Wood, a staff writer at The New Yorker, widely considered one of the most influential literary critics of his generation. Prior to joining the magazine, he was a book critic for The Guardian and The New Republic. And this month, he is releasing a novel of his own, which is called Upstate, and which tells the story of an English father visiting his grown daughter in upstate New York, along with her sister. Wood himself, who was born in England, lives in Massachusetts with his wife, the novelist Claire Massoud. And it is from his home in Cambridge, I believe, where he joins me now. Hi, James. Are you in Cambridge? Hi, Isaac. I am. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the program. Pleasure. So tell me, how is the process of writing a novel different from the process of writing an essay? This may seem like an obvious question, but I'm curious for you how it's different. So um, the main difference is a, is a pretty obvious one, of course, and that has to do with uh, temporality. Um, you know, the, the, a review is written fairly quickly. Um, it has a, a limited, it's a limited project. A novel, I guess, could take an infinite amount of time. Um, this one took, despite being short, took quite a long time because it kept on being interrupted. So I actually began it about three or four years ago and then stopped writing for seven or eight months. And as, as things got in the way, having to earn a living, um, being a dad, that sort of thing. Um, so that's, that's one basic difference. And I suppose another important one is that, and I think here, here, this is a, a deeper point, um, that I think one has to, one has to suspend um, thinking about an audience that, I mean, when you write journalism, um, an audience is sort of built into the, it's structurally built into the relationship. You're writing it for an editor who's going to see it in a day or two, and then the next week it will be out and there's a there's a, a, a sort of known quantity, a known audience will be consuming that review, uh, even if it's a small amount of people. Um, with a novel, I think you just have to, you can't know what that is or think about it and you have to put it aside. And I think that is um, freeing too. Um, uh, and then of course, there's the probably way where you were heading with your question, which is the, the even deeper question of, of what faculties are engaged when one is writing creatively as opposed to uh, as opposed to critically well so what 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 are what are the answers to that last part then um these i saved it for last because these are the ones i find hard to talk about um i at least find i can't turn off the critical monitor quite how i would like to uh and i have come to the conclusion or perhaps i've just reconciled myself to that inability but i've come to the conclusion that 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 isn't such a bad thing um that maintaining a critical consciousness at least enables me to um review myself edit myself um think twice and three times about everything uh, i'm doing and and all all, all the other elements that of course are, are part of any uh creative endeavor so i'm i i've sort of cautiously come to embrace that uh, that inability to to turn off the uh, the critical side. Do you think it limits perhaps the type of novel you could write even if not the quality of a specific novel? To have to to be unable to turn off that side of your brain or or do you think it's in, on the whole just a Yeah, I think possible I think possibly it does. I think um there's a there's a kind of uh there's this beautiful phrase I love from VS Pritchett where he talks about how uh, Ford Maddox Ford was unable to unable to fall into the relaxed stupor uh, 
um, that the great artist, you know, he was thinking of, I don't know, Proust or someone like that, um, is able to do. And, and that sort of relaxed stupor, that kind of that kind of being almost half asleep uh, is is allows a certain kind of. Um, uh, yeah, allows us a kind of freedom, which uh, which I which I'm not able to I'm not able to find. You said that it helped you when you're sort of editing your book or going through it. Have you have you sort of gone through the process of reading your book the way you would read a novel that you're going to review, you know, with your pencil and you're sitting in your chair and you're checking off what you would the way you're, you know, writing about some book for The New Yorker? Oh, yeah, most certainly. Uh, in fact, much more systematically and chronically. Um, that's to say, you know, again, the the review is a limited endeavor. Uh, you might, at most, you might be able to to read a book twice, uh, though that doesn't happen much in, in practice. Uh, and then it's gone. Um, living with this manuscript, thinking critically about it. And then it has to be said, even after it's been sent off to the publisher, uh, sort of waking up and finding that half of what you've done doesn't please you, please you. Um, I found it to be sort of an intensely, uh, self-critical, uh, activity. Um, so yeah, I was, uh, I was constantly writing my, my worst possible reviews. The thing you said about not writing for an audience was interesting. I mean, your wife is obviously a novelist. You know, a lot of novelists. Is that, is that sort of universal? Mm. Cause that didn't strike me as, as obvious that, novelists and obviously i'm not talking about dan brown or something but that that novelists mm -hmm. are not necessarily writing for an audience is it just because the work itself is more personal than a than a book review is i mean why do you think that's the case i think so certainly in my case uh, i just felt i felt that i was i felt that it was important to please myself um and that and that part of following a creative line means of course part of it is simply going somewhere where you didn't know you would go, and that is a that's a that's a beautiful experience that I think writers talk about, uh, and 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 they encounter that, and I and I did from time to time while I was writing this novel of just letting the material generate its own energies and direction. But for me, I found it, yeah, I just felt I it was important that I that I please myself, and not and that meant, as it were, not pleasing an audience, um, which meant further not even relating to a, a, a potential audience. I don't know how other writers think about this, though I think increasingly that literary writers are going to have to stop thinking about uh, audiences because I don't know that they have much grasp uh, anymore of, of what the components of that audience is. Uh, your book, which I upstate, which I mentioned in the intro, is about fathers and daughters or a father and daughters. Um why do you think there aren't more books written about the father-daughter relationship compared to the other possible parent-child relationships? Um, that is a very good question because it seems you're right. I mean, it's, fiction is absolutely dominated by uh, same gender relationships and then uh, even further dominated by, it has to be said, father and son uh, relationships. I guess that writers feel that there's a kind of, um, there's an intense internal struggle that is that is that is more dynamic somehow uh if it's within uh the gender and perhaps more violent in its in its nature um but for me uh the interest really starts when you when you 
when the when the genders cross that's where that's where it's really uh, interesting so i was absolutely sure that i wanted to write about a father and two daughters uh is that because of your own experience as a father um yeah i i have a i have a, a, a elder daughter and a younger son um and i the household i grew up in um i had a i had a sort of an easy relationship in some ways with my with my dad but it could be said i had a fairly boring one too and that all the energy actually was cross gender so so the the fierceness in my family and all the authority uh was from my mum so uh my schooling as it were as a kid was was in how to uh manage the the parent who wasn't uh uh male um so maybe it came out of that I, I i don't know you know you're a novelist because i'm asking you boring novelist questions like how much of this is drawn from real life but um has you, <laughs> i'm happy to talk about how, that how old's your daughter now she's 16 has she read the book she's not read the book um and i don't want to get too autobiographical but i will say that um i mean i just mentioned two families the one the, the one which I've partly created and the one that I was born into. And in both those cases, um, there have, of course, been uh, happy experiences and unhappy experiences. Certainly, when I was growing up, uh, I, my as I kind of said, my mother was sort of fierce and um, somewhat abusive even and quite unhappy. Uh, there was a lot of depression around and it didn't seem to be something that afflicted my dad in the same way. So I think from an early age, I was trying to consider these these issues, why one person and not the other, uh, how these things are uh, distributed. And then how, of course, are they handed on to the children of those people? Um, I'm, I'm one of uh, three uh, siblings and looking at the three of us, there would seem also to be a kind of uneven, somewhat unfair, and apparently random distribution of happiness and unhappiness, or just call it stability and instability. Um, and then when you have kids yourself, you begin to think about this, just at the basic level of noticing how very different one child is from the other and how little control you had over that and uh, will have over that. Last uh, last personal question. I had your wife on the show about six months ago. I think you're the you're yeah. the first husband wife pair to ever appear. So congratulations. <laughs> she said I asked her what it was like to have a husband who's a literary critic, and she being a novelist, reading her work, and mm. vice versa. You know, and she said it's harder for him in the situation than me. I think she meant that he's the one who has to read my novels and give comments on it. So it's harder than me reading his literary right. essays. So what is that like now that right. the situation is reversed and you're writing novels? I mean, I know you've written fiction before, but that you've yeah. spent the last couple of years writing a novel and, and she's reading it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say, uh, I don't know if it was harder or less hard, um, but it was, it was incredibly useful because of course she's able to encourage me when I feel like it's gone flat and dead and I, if I haven't written anything for four months or something. So she was very good just at that practical level. And then she was the first reader uh, when the manuscript was uh, finished. And that was immensely helpful because she read it and said, you know, with a novelist's eye, she sort of said, this is fine, but uh, there are a couple of lines that I would, that, that seem to have been snipped off too early that you need to continue right to the end of the book uh, and really showed me how to do that. Um, so that was, yeah, that was, that was splendid. To change topics a little bit here. 
You bet. Do you find yourself reading, uh, if you go back and read uh, old novels or or even more current novels, of, um, let's say, uh, misbehaving men, that you are reading mm-hmm. them from a different perspective at all these days? Or have you have you thought anew about engaging with literature that is created by people who may not have been the best people in their personal lives? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I'm not. I think I know where you're where 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 you're going with with the question. Um, and yes, I think. I mean, I was just thinking about this last week when Philip Roth died. Um, when I pretty much arrived uh, at Harvard in 2003, uh, maybe two years later, I taught Sabbath Theatre, a book I very much admire. Um, and certainly a problematic book about a misbehaving man. Also, I think a tragic book about a certain burden of male sexuality. And that's how I taught it. But I don't think I would teach that book now. Um, and uh, I would probably be a little too anxious uh, about my ability to, to pull it off as a, as a teacher. Um, uh, so, yes, I think things have, things have changed. That said, you know, Going way back to my late twenties, uh, I was always, you know, whatever I wrote about John Updike, I was always very critical of the, uh, of had no time for the sort of misogyny and 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 so on. It just, you know, had. So I don't know. Think there are specific, perhaps institutional things that have changed, um, but I don't know that my that my understanding, particularly of that post-war generation of male writers has changed uh, very much. They've always seemed a, a fairly flawed uh, bunch of people to me, particularly in the way they write about women or, or don't even admit women into their fictions. When you say you you wonder about your ability to pull it off, do, do you think, does mm-hmm. that mean that you think the consciousness of students have changed, has changed, and so they would respond differently to the same lesson? Does it mean that that you feel like maybe you weren't talking about it properly and now you're aware that you weren't talking about it properly? I guess, w- what exactly do you mean by that? No, I don't, I don't think that. That's to say, I, I think I would teach it almost exactly as I did in 2005 when I distinctly remember we talked about the misogyny, but then we also tried to talk about how the novel is pretty critical uh, of a kind of um yeah a sort of vicious sort of unbridled uh, male sexuality um no actually what i mean is it's almost a thing of uh, it's it's really almost a thing as basic as speech acts that's to say i don't think what i uh, say would be different uh there are literally passages that i read out in 2005 that i would feel anxious about reading out now and anxious, it be, it, I, I guess I just mean, what do you mean by anxious? That your students would feel anxious? Is that the? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that I think I think people. I mean, it wasn't easy in two thousand five. I was aware that there were certain students were sort of you know leave. It was a lecture, so uh, there, it was come people could come and go. But there was a certain sense of of you know uh, the room was getting a little emptier uh, over the three weeks. I think that we that we discussed that novel, and that's fine. Um, but yes, I think there would be the the slight fear now that uh, that that some of the the energy of that of the comedy of that novel um, would be um, unspeakable. Have you ever taught Lolita, by the way? 
I never have done, though. Uh, it doesn't lack for... Uh, I used to joke that the two novels at Harvard that you could guarantee everyone had read were To the Lighthouse and Lolita because they were all they were always taught in sort of four or five multiple overlapping uh, classes. Um, so they certainly do encounter uh, Lolita, but I've never taught it. Uh, along the lines of what you're saying, it, it feels like we're kind of at a point in American culture where with a lot of the criticism of art and books that the the mm-hmm. political has kind of been raised up and aesthetic judgments yeah. are sort of uh, talked about less than they were and the politics of the work under consideration is is talked about more. And I think that there are obvious yeah. reasons for that, uh, that things are becoming more politicized, some good, maybe some not so good. D- do you feel that reading criticism and, and how do you feel about it? I do. Um, I've and, and actually I felt it, um, I, I felt that to be a movement that certainly predates the, um, you know, the Trump administration and also predates, uh, the, the Me Too, um, movement. Um, I mean, for some time now, I probably even going back to say, uh, my book, How Fiction Works, when that came out in 2008, um, I felt that I've been to some extent, uh, fighting a, a somewhat sort of rearguard um, activity as a as a formalist and having to make a case uh, as as uh, as a formalist as someone who tends to uh, aesthetic uh, matters in a way that perhaps wasn't true uh, I don't know ten or fifteen years uh, ago um, so yeah I I I I I have noticed that and and actually um, the the, the politicization of everything um, only makes me um, more keen to secure a kind of um, a sort of sacred space. You know, I mean, I like the idea of form as something that draws a circle around um, material that will be utterly changed within that circle. And that is also set apart somewhat from uh, from contemporary political issues. Do you know, do you know what I mean? It's not, it, it seems important to, I guess I find myself drawn more and more to pieces of music or poems or certain novels that don't have much to say directly uh, about our contemporary uh, issues and that seem to have this, yeah, this sort of formal um, band uh, around them within which um, there is a kind of uh, stillness almost. Right. I, I mean, I think the I think the response to that would be that there were all these pieces of art before that were political in some way and we did not perceive them as political because sure. um, sort of our ingrained biases or, you know, that colo- colonialism Absolutely. was taken at face value or whatever. And so it wasn't even discussed. Totally. Um, but, but I, I also find myself, uh, perusing newspapers or magazines wanting to, wanting to read things or books, wanting to just completely get away from anything that even seems remotely political. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're all, you know, we're all sort of exhausted by our minute by minute, um, which is deliberate, of course, uh, involvement, uh, with the, with the undulating narrative of the, of the Trump administration so that I think anything uh, just at that level, anything that, that isn't speaking to that day-to-day um, burden is, yeah, seems like a liberation. 
You uh, coined a term called hysterical realism uh, about 18 years ago, Mm -hmm. reviewing Zadie Smith's first novel, White Teeth. And for people who haven't read your piece or or haven't heard the term hysterical realism, well, do do you want to just define it quickly? Sure. Um, I don't know how much, you know, whether it has much uh, coinage anymore or whether it should indeed have much coinage. Um, It was, for me, a way of talking about a kind of... uh, comedy um that uh in fiction that seemed uh intent on i guess a sort of slightly bogus vitality um which tended towards uh caricature and zaniness um uh, and extremity uh rather than the subtler arts uh, uh, of comedy and also tended um tended to swerve away from something that I think is one of the central strands in the novelistic tradition, which is tragedy, tragedy comedy, the sort of comedy that, that makes you cry. Um, the, the laughter through tears kind of, uh, tradition, which I think is really in a way the, uh, the novel, the novel's invention. Right. My, my, uh, my colleague, Laura Miller in a piece uh, talking about this said the, the novels that you were writing about that quote, they're big, they're full of information, ideas, and stylistic riffs. They have eventful plots that transpire on what's often called a broad social canvas. They experiment with form and voice. They're overtly or maybe just overly smart. I, I guess the question that I want to ask you, a friend of mine suggested this and, and it hadn't occurred to me and mm-hmm. I thought it was very interesting, which is that, have you thought about your critique of hysterical realism now, given how hysterical the world we're living in actually is, how hysterical reality actually is in the last couple of years? And I know over time, people may often feel like they're living in a hysterical reality, but this does seem like a unique moment in all kinds of ways. And so I was wondering if you've, if you've kind of thought about how someone could capture reality now without being slightly hysterical. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. Um, so just to back up for a second, um, I have, of course, rethought that whole uh, critique and sometimes probably to please myself uh, or justify myself more than anything else. Um, I've tended to reformulate it so that I now think sometimes when I look back at that essay, it wasn't so much the his- the hysteria side of things I was criticizing as in some ways the the realism side of things. That's to say, there were two parts of that critique. The critique was about a kind of comedy, but the critique was also about a certain uh, way in which those novelists were at once very unrealistic, but at the same time, uh, in terms of the grammar of the fiction, were just uh, following a fairly boring realism. They didn't seem to me to be doing anything very uh, interesting uh, with form. But you're right. Uh, Of course, that feeling of the novel being in competition, particularly with American reality, is not a new one. Um, and uh, I mean, you could probably say it goes all the way back to sort of Melville's, you know, the confidence man. But 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 the aforementioned Philip Roth famously um, talked in the early 60s about uh, American reality sort of, you know, outdoing uh, um, fiction's abilities to uh, catch up. Um and I suppose I, I, I suppose I, here's what I wouldn't change. Um, we're in hysterically unreal times, but does it follow um, that uh, the novel, which as you rightly suggest is always to some extent about disclosing reality, 
does it follow that that the novel is trying to mirror or embody that, or is the novel um, doing something related to, but subtly different from that kind of um, lived experience of hysteria? Uh, in other words, I think you could you could make a a, a, a case that precisely what we don't need now um, is uh, fiction that exactly maps onto uh, the anxiety of our times. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I remember reading a Salman Rushdie quote, which I always thought was was a strange way of looking at things, where he essentially says mm. about writing about India, he says, India is a big place, a crowded place. It's hot. There's tons of energy. And so prose to capture India essentially needs to be all those things. And I thought that's yes. kind of a category error of some sort. Absolutely, and and was brilliantly critiqued both uh, in essayistic form and in the form of his own fiction by the uh, Anglo-Indian writer Amit Chowdhury, um, who's been very good on this 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 idea of sort of you know this mimetic fallacy, this idea that you just um, you you fill up the form uh, with the thing it's representing, and then it looks like the thing it's representing. Um, it should be said again that's that's an interesting. It's interestingly written into, I think, the the American challenge. It's it's written into the project of the of the great American novel. Um, it's written into, say, Whitman's work when Whitman says uh, America is the greatest poem, um, and so it's not going to go away. I think as a as a particular kind of um, uh, fraughtness for for American writers. Just to add to what you were saying about Roth, uh, old essay of yours you wrote about Roth. He has shown that postmodern artifice and American realism are not incompatible, but actually feed each other. Perhaps his greatest novel, The Counterlife, takes what it needs from postmodern self-consciousness and fictive games and mounts a moving inquiry into what it means to lead a life. I, before we go, I just uh, I was hoping you would you would if you had anything else to say about about Philip Roth, um, what he meant to you as a as a writer and. Um, now with his death, um, what you think his legacy is in American fiction. Totally. Um, and I do think he was, he was the great stealth postmodernist. Um, and it's, the, it's the obvious difference between him and, and the other, uh, Jewish American writer that he, that he adored above all Saul Bellow, who, who essentially was not an experimentalist in any, in any way. There was, there was play at the level of sentence, but it wasn't about uh, essentially changing the forms. Um, with Roth, he was always, it wasn't just that he was interested in, you know, veils of fictionality, alter egos uh, and so on. He really liked the challenge of form. He really liked to, to tell a story one way, then to tell it the other way. Um, he liked splitting, um, uh, characters up uh, in the way he did send Operation Shylock. Um, and he liked writing essentially about himself. So in all, in, in all these interesting ways, I mean, if you look at what's currently energetic in uh, American writing, um, uh, autobiography, autofiction, um, um, essayism, um, Roth was there uh, 20 years earlier. Um, particularly with a book like the like the Counter Life, which I very much uh, admire. Um, so it's a it's a yeah it's a massive loss, and I think all of us thought you know he partly that he would just live forever uh, in that way that one does, um, but also I think we all hoped that maybe he hadn't retired and was quietly um, uh, writing the the final 
sort of brilliantly posthumous, um, uh, should we say devastatingly posthumous uh, critique of us all uh, to be published after his death. But maybe we'll, we'll discover that was the case all along. Um, last thing, uh, another writer who passed away within the last month or so is Tom Wolfe, who um, also was someone who uh, ha- left a big imprint on American letters in terms of both fiction and nonfiction and uh, liked mm-hmm. to play around with ideas of uh, realism and uh, not n- le- hysterical realism, let's say, uh, both. W- yeah. What are your feelings of uh, about Tom Wolfe and his legacy? So... I, I can see that the journalism uh, was important when it came out and it belonged to, you rightly say, I mean, it was, it was, a, there were two ways of responding to the 60s. There was loud, because the time is loud, uh, and that was Wolf and many others. And then there was quiet, uh, like Joan Didion, um, where you were, where you were fiercely uh, filtering everything. And I suppose I'm going to sound very contrary if I say that, um, some of the loudness, loudness irritates me in Wolf, uh, but also some of the quietness in Didion seems too uh, filtered to me uh, now. And I guess I want some something, something in the middle. Um, but the journalism is important and, and and will obviously last. I couldn't bear his fiction because it took from the hysteria of the journalism, or it transferred it directly to uh, uh, the fiction, um, and you find that that there's no individuation in Wolf's novels. Everyone uh, thinks and speaks in exactly the same way, which is to say loudly. Um, So there's literally no, if you think of it in musical terms, there's no attention to dynamics. It's as if if the orchestra or the band is just playing at full volume uh, for a five-hour gig, and then you just collapse with bleeding ears at the end of it. It's appalling. Yeah. Uh, A Man in Full is the the worst long book, long novel that I've actually finished or the longest worst novel that I've actually finished to the end and not quit. Maybe that's well. And also very interesting that the, that the writer, it shows how I, mean, I perhaps shouldn't say this cause I'm offering up a hostage to fortune when I say it, but it shows that it isn't always a, an easy thing to move from one genre to another. In other words, the qualities that made his journalism uh, interesting, for instance, a playfulness with form and, um, uh, this sort of ear for excess um, doesn't they don't work at all in his fiction and uh, of course in fictional terms he's a completely traditional there's no there's no experimentation whatsoever uh, any boldness there was in the journalism isn't there in the fiction uh, uh, at all it's uh, completely it's a completely lazy inheritance of uh, sort of essentially popular realist grammar yeah someone I mean uh, someone like Zadie Smith or someone who can who can write write essays yeah. and write fiction at a at both at quiet at, at extremely high levels and do different things with both is um, the exception Indeed. rather than the norm. I agree. James Wood is the author of the novel Upstate, which is out now and uh, which you can pick up at Amazon or even better your local bookstore. Uh, James, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Isaac. And that's our show for today. I have to ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks to Shasha Leonard at Slate Studios in Brooklyn. If you have an idea for a guest, you just want to let me know your thoughts. Email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at iChotner for more information about the show. Thanks for listening.